Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In the last presidential election, both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were for a financial transaction tax, often called a Wall Street tax. It's sort of a sales tax on top of any securities trade. It's something Singapore, Japan, India, the UK, Taiwan, and other places already do. In the Chicago mayoral race, three of the 14 candidates want a local version called a LaSalle Street tax. The potential revenues are huge. The Chicago-based CME group runs four of the largest financial markets in the world. Together, they account for around $1 quadrillion worth of trades per year. Just a tiny taxation of these trades could result in more money than the city's entire budget. But the devil is in the details, and both the LaSalle Street and Wall Street tax have been beaten back by financial uh, institutions for decades. With me is Stephen Rosenthal, senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, and he's the co-author of a report with the National Tax Journal entitled Financial Transaction Taxes in Theory and Practice. Thanks for joining us, Stephen Rosenthal. Thank you, Jerome. And also with me is Benedictine University economist Ron Bayman. He's a member of the Chicago Political Economy Group, and they are advocates of a financial transaction tax. Thanks for joining us, Ron. Thank you, Jerome. I wanted to start with a little history of the financial transaction tax because it's got a an esteemed history. John Maynard Keynes is the guy who thought this up. Um, Stephen, can you give us a little background on this thing? Well, I think uh, Keynes is, is known for a concern about excess speculation. And you know, I think that a financial transactions tax um, addresses to some extent uh, the level of activity and, and, and speculation that goes on. And so I, I think there's, there's a fair amount of historic precedent amongst a lot of economists, um, Tobin as well. I think there are a variety of economists over the years who've looked at this and thought about it. And, um, Ron, the United States uh, did have a financial transactions tax at one time? Yes, that's correct. There was one in uh, in New York. Uh, I think it was repealed. Uh, Steve probably knows more of the history of this, but it was repealed uh, during the uh, – when the when the, uh, the city was bailed out by the bank. So one of the, it, it actually – I think the tax is still on the books, but the revenue is rebated to the – uh, financial institutions are not collected, uh, so it's it it is a state tax uh, that was in 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 force for many years, uh, and uh, is just not not being uh, collected right now in in New York State, and also the the one in Chicago uh, the the tax in Illinois uh, uh, the uh, the the uh, Tom Donovan of the Chicago Board of Trade uh, lobbied the the state in 1980 to to remove the city's uh, uh, home rule powers to impose that tax. So it would have to be a state tax as well uh, in Illinois. But that doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, the city couldn't couldn't lobby for it and, 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 and receive a, 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 a share of the revenue from that. All right. And the um, idea of uh, there is also a small uh, tax right now that funds the SEC that is something like a miniature uh, financial transaction tax. Uh, correct. That, that is my understanding, yeah. So yeah, that's right. And um, I want to talk about how this works in other places and other um, countries before we get into the nitty-gritty. 
Um, now, I, I was reading that Taiwan funds 5.5% of their national budget with a financial transactions tax. Are, are there places where this thing is really working well, Stephen? Well, um, there's lots of small taxes in lots of places. Uh, you don't find a large tax in a significant um, commercial or, or financial hub. Uh, or at least when you do find them, like in the U.K., the stamp tax, or uh, the French now have um, a tax on securities transfers, um, both of which are limited. And so I think that, uh, you know, in in terms of of larger, more prominent uh, financial markets and the like, there historically has not been such a, um, at least not sizable taxes. Um, But there is a lot of money to be collected. I think the, 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 the British have collected a lot for a while. And there, are, of course, are uh, stories about how not to go about this. People use Sweden as a model uh, for too large of a tax, which uh, drove its financial markets out. So um, I think it's fair to say that, the, that to varying degrees, that there, there are success stories. Uh, I think the real key in terms of... Of, of, of measuring success is what are you trying to accomplish? How much revenue? How sensitivity? How sensitive is the local economic base? That sort of thing. And I think there's a variety of, of assessments in various spots on that that score. Um, right. And, uh, yeah. If I could just uh, so the Taiwan is particularly interesting because it's it's on options and derivative trading, which is which is what uh, the tax would be imposed on in Chicago, and uh, and uh, it the the, the it, the major issue with regard to the tax has been the claim by the financial uh, lobbyists that the uh, the trading would just move out of the city if the tax was imposed. And I just want to uh, – I'm sure we're going to talk about that later. But uh, uh, the tax in the, – the fee, it's really a LaSalle Street fee, is, 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 is quite small. And a part of the impetus is not only to raise revenue for the state of Illinois but also to further the – uh, the the political uh, movement to get the tax enacted on a national level and, and a global level. Uh, so, uh, but I think a very small tax on a local level is what we're proposing, and and there are all kinds of reasons why uh, 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 we believe the state actually does have quite a great deal of leverage. That it would not be that easy to just move all the trading out of the city. Uh, uh, and and by the way, the, the tax would be on the traders, not on the exchanges. So it would just be an issue of, of volume reduction for the exchanges themselves. So in a way, the 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 name for this tax, the Wall Street tax or the LaSalle Street tax, it's a misnomer. It's something that's to be done on the traders themselves. It doesn't necessarily tax institutions. Is is that a better way to look at it, um, Stephen? Um. Well, I think so. I, I think that uh, there are a lot of labels here uh, when we discuss the financial transaction tech, tax. A, a lot of there's a lot of populism toward it, uh, which resonates with lots of people. Some labels I think work, uh, like a Robin Hood tax. I some, sometimes these financial transactions tax are, are, taxes are described, and uh, that could be appropriate. Virtually everybody uh, who might be affected by the tax, you know, either the financial intermediaries or the holders of the, the, the financial positions and the securities uh, or the executives in these institutions uh, tend to be very high income. And so I think for, 
for sure, when you think about who bears a tax, it's, it's, it's high income and rich. But the labels of a Wall Street tax or a LaSalle tax, um, in my judgment, is somewhat misleading because we don't quite know where the incidence of the tax falls. Uh, there, there certainly is a lot of financial activity in Chicago and in New York. And, some, uh, and for sure, trading levels would fall, as Ron suggests, um, um, you know, perhaps there'd even be some shift of customers from one jurisdiction to another um, if, if you just impose, say, a Chicago tax without a New York tax. But, but beyond that, uh, beyond the, the local geography, I think you need to think through um, who else could be uh, affected. Is, are the prices of securities changed in any material fashion? Um, is, are the intermediaries profit, the, the financial firms changed? Uh, things like that. And that's a little harder to assess. Uh, we're talking about a financial transaction tax, uh, sometimes called a Wall Street or LaSalle Street tax or a Robin Hood tax. And we're doing it with Stephen Rosenthal, uh, who's the co-author of a report called Financial Transaction Taxes in Theory and Practice, and Ron Bayman, and he's a member of the Chicago Political Economy Group that um, is for a financial transaction tax. Um there's a lot of proposals for this out there, and I wanted to kind of go from a national on to, to, to the more local. Um, Bernie Sanders, he uh, advocated for this in the last election. Hillary Clinton was also for it, and he has – you know, introduces bills and wants to fund uh, colleges and universities with this. He thinks you know, 0.5 percent on stocks, 0.1 percent for bonds, and 0.005 for derivatives. Um, what do you – what do you make of something like that kind of proposal, Ron? Is if um, if is he seems to have thought this out in proportions and and has an idea how to spend the money? Is this the good way to go about it? Yeah, no, I I, I think it's a good idea. I mean, you know, we can the the the, the specific levels can always be negotiated and and changed, but the in in principle, uh, uh, in the in the current economy. Uh, the income from property is far outpacing in- income from work, and that's been a, a, a very large problem and uh, one of the causes of the extreme inequality that has, has mushroomed in the last you know, few decades. And, uh, you know, the taxes on finance in general and uh, financial transactions tax is one way to, to tax uh, specifically financial speculation – uh, I think would be a, a very good thing, not only uh, to raise revenue, but also from a policy standpoint to reduce the level of, uh, of, of activity and resources going into this uh, mostly purely speculative behavior and, and try and, uh, you know, move the economy toward more productive pursuits. Let me just add that um, uh, with regard to the tax in Illinois, um, it's, uh, the, the tax, there, there are two bills and the one, uh, the, the HP, not one, 1970, the, the bill in the Senate, the Aquino bill with, with seven senators co-sponsoring, uh, would tax only, uh, products for which Chicago has a, a, a near monopoly, in some cases, a, an absolute monopoly. Uh, and so it, it's specifically, you know, uh, narrowed to tax, uh, uh, products for which traders really don't have other options. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, I, I just wanted to raise that because uh, there has been a concern about whether a local tax would actually work. And, and, and we believe very strongly that it would work at this very minimal level. All right. Um, do you have some thoughts about that, Stephen? Can you tax at a local level and make it work? 
Sure, so, sure. I've I've thoughts on both of of, of the questions uh, that are in front of us at the moment. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Bernie Sanders' financial transaction uh, tax was much larger and aimed at a much uh, different objective uh, than Hillary Clinton's. Uh, um, Senator Sanders' uh, tax was fairly high, um, half a percent on stock trades, uh, for example, which is much higher than, say, some of the other proposals floating around Congress and discussed in the EU. Uh, but, but it could raise a whole bunch of money, uh, and he planned to use all of that money to, to, pay, to, to fund uh, uh, free colleges. Uh, and we are really strapped for finding good financial uh, resource, uh, 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 resources these days in terms of what to tap. And so that's how he looked at the tax. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, uh, aimed more at uh, high-frequency trading. Uh, she never got. She never actually spelled out her proposal in detail. But I spoke to her campaign during that that period, and and I had written on uh, the French high-frequency uh, uh, trade uh, tax, and and that's a tax that's that's aimed at a much uh, smaller fee and level, uh, so that it doesn't raise so much money, but you don't need much. Uh, money to uh, sort of curtail uh, you know, poor economic activity. Some of the speculation that goes on in the marketplace today really is on very thin margins. And so when you stop and think about like why a financial transactions tax, uh, there, there are a few different things. You can raise a, big, raise a lot of money and charge a big fee, and uh, 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 that potentially could have large dislocation effects, uh, not just on speculative trading, perhaps, but other uh, commercial activity that we want to see play in place, or you can aim smaller if if your goal is just to eliminate, say, uh, speculative trader trading and, and rent sinking in the marketplace. Now, um, with respect to Ron's second point on, you know, what about Chicago versus, say, New York? Um, both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and those in Congress who are thinking about a financial transactions tax today, uh, and even the, the EU, which has been po- poised for several years. Uh, discussing a, a, a broader uh, EU-wider uh, transaction tax, uh, they focus on what happens to the financial markets. Uh, is there really a competitive concern? And uh, certainly it's a lot, uh, the competitive concern and substitution is a lot, uh, more, a lot more easily done if it's, say, moving from Chicago to New York than, say, moving a trade uh, from the U.S. Uh, to the U.K., or maybe even to a less sophisticated market. But uh, Ron raises good points that, that there certainly is some, some monopolistic um, and rent-seeking uh, uh, activity that goes on now that might be hard to shift quickly. Uh, they may still be profitable. And so that's, that's somewhat difficult to assess. But certainly, when you think about a, f- a financial transactions tax collected locally, I think you have to be all the more concerned about the dislocation of moving off uh, trading from one one place to another. All right, Ron. Um, do you want to kind of talk? You're you're not interested in curbing um, the the high frequency trading. You're not uh, interested specifically in uh, like funding education. You you want a tax on monopolistic practices to help city budgets. Is that the that the idea here? Uh, no, I, 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 uh, I, I actually am quite uh, interested in, uh, in 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 all the, the the those goals. I mean, not just so so. Um, 
Uh, high frequency trading is a is a is a major issue in in Chicago and all the exchanges. I think, I and mean, there's estimates up to fifty percent uh, or more of the trading in Chicago is is, is uh, you know millions of trades per second, making making uh, gains on very small margins, uh, and uh, and the the revenue could be used for education for, you know, it, it, it would have to be collected by the state under existing rules unless the city could get its home rule powers back for this. Uh, and, and presumably it would be shared, you know, and used, uh, 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 part of it could be, um, uh, would be, um, shared with the city. Uh, so, uh, all of those, all those goals are worthy goals, I think. And and as you mentioned at the outset, the the, the, the levels of revenue we're talking about are are really large. Um, you know, twelve billion would be a maximum estimate that we've come up with. But even if you say repress fifty percent of the volume, it would go down to six million. It still would be the the second largest revenue uh, resource uh, after the the income tax for the state if this was enacted. Um, you know, far surpassing. I mean, I, 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 I do absolutely support a progressive income tax, but I think the, the increase in revenue from this uh, would be even larger. Uh, and it, uh, so uh, with regard to the, uh, the issue of um, uh, uh, moving the trading elsewhere, uh, so the, the, the uh, traders would have a collective action problem. So if, if, if almost all of the, the trading is being done, uh, on a certain exchange, uh, an individual trader doesn't want to move to another exchange because uh, there wouldn't be, you know, people to trade with. So it, everybody would have to move together if the traders were to decide to uh, to set up another exchange. And we had a, a history of that in 2011. Uh, uh, an ex- uh, uh, there was an attempt to set up an exchange in Atlanta called the ELX, I believe. I'm looking through my notes here. Uh, and it was uh, it was going to reduce the fees by about uh, one twenty five to two dollars, and it was going to be backed. It's called it was called the Electronic Liquidity Exchange (ELX). Uh, it was also was going to be backed by <coughs> J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs's large Wall Street fame f- firms. They tried to get people to move to this new exchange, and they were unsuccessful. I mean, the, their best volume was achieved when their monthly trades. Uh, almost equal the daily trades on some contracts at the at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So it's very very hard to get traders to move elsewhere once uh, uh, the liquidity. I mean, all the trading is happening in a certain place. That's where the traders want to want to want want to trade. Uh, and uh, so so I think that that that's one obstacle. And the other obstacle for moving out would be uh, say the. Uh, if the exchanges themselves said, well, we're going to lose all this volume and profit, and therefore uh, we want to move the trading out of state, uh, they have the additional problem of co-location, which is also related to this high-frequency trading uh, uh, issue. The high-frequency traders set up their, uh, their servers right next to the matching engines of the exchange. So, for example, in, in Aurora, uh, there's seven football fields of uh, of, of these uh, uh, servers uh, set up right next to the the, the CME uh, the the Chicago Mercantile Exchange matching engine, and they're 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 talking about expanding it to 15 football fields. Uh, for the exchanges to move all of that out of state, they would have to not only re- relocate their own 
their own matching engine, but also all of these other co-locators with whom they have contracts to to you know because they're they're purposely setting up their their uh, servers right next to the uh, to the exchange server in an effort to shave off you know nanoseconds or you know milliseconds of 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 time and get a jump on other traders. I mean. And that's one of the reasons why many of us uh, looking looking at this say that this is just a rigged game going on here, where these high frequency traders are using all kinds of uh, you know uh, 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 special access and other methods to skim off profits from the uh, what I, what we've been calling economic traders or traders that are actually trading to to to, to hedge risk or you know using the trading for economic reasons and not for not uh, or, or not primarily for speculative reasons. Uh, so, so I think you know, given the co-location problem and the collective action problem, this notion that a lot of uh, you know most of the legislators in Illinois have that you know, oh, they just move out of state if we tax them uh, is a you know, it's it's an easy uh, uh, and and seemingly plausible explanation. Uh, especially given the power of the financial uh, sector in Illinois, which is, you know, by far the most profitable and probably one of the most powerful uh, industries in the state, uh, which pays almost no tax. I mean, they pay a little bit of uh, sales tax and income tax, but it's negligible compared to their profits, which is, you know, like a 30, they have like 30% profit margins on on uh, on you know a billion dollar I mean oh about a billion dollars last I looked in 2011 of profit I mean they're enormously profitable and they pay very little so they should be shamed into you know some sense of social responsibility that's why I'm saying the state should should apply leverage uh, that I believe it does have to 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 just tell them look you know you're an extremely profitable industry you should be contributing to the state that is experiencing severe financial problems right now. Ron Bayman is a member of the Chicago Political Economy Group, and he's an economist at Benedictine University. And Stephen Rosenthal is a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. We'll be back with more after the break, and we'll continue talking about a financial security transaction tax. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the possibility of a financial transaction tax today on Worldview. And with me is Stephen Rosenthal from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. And Stephen, you know, before the break, uh, Ron was talking about the servers in Aurora and kind of the heavy lift that it would be to move uh, an institution, uh, trading institutions like the ones we have here in Chicago. Um, and there's also a fiber optic cable out there that runs that they've built recently that runs from uh, Chicago to New York. Uh, tell us something about what you think about uh, moving and, and just the, the heft of doing that. Well, um, there is um, a fair amount of inertia to try to move something. On the other hand, um, I differ somewhat from Ron in the process that he describes I don't think one day you just wake up and find that the traders have all moved elsewhere or are trying to move elsewhere. I think the process uh, would be, to the extent you could detect harm, 
that the trading levels might yet decline. And I, for instance, uh, buy S&P puts uh, to hedge uh, my uh, stock portfolio, mainly my retirement portfolio. And those goes to Chicago today, and I pay 65 cents a contract to buy those. If the contract fee were tripled, say, uh, because of a tax, I might ask for my contracts to be routed uh, to New York. Maybe I wouldn't buy the S&P, but a different equity index. Or uh, in this day and age of international trading, maybe they can go to to London. Um, So there's a lot of substitution. And if trading volumes fall, then, of course, uh, the commercial activity would fall as well. The separate question is, and I've heard about this football field and the like, I I don't quite understand its purpose. I've read Flash uh, Boys by Michael Lewis and the laying of the cable uh, between New York and and Chicago to allow, uh, in effect, these high-frequency traders to front-run retail customers. And I agree with Ron completely. It's just a, a fraud. And the SEC should insist that brokers actually respect their clients as opposed to you know, routing order flow to a place in which a high-frequency trader can take a quick peek and run ahead and make a profit. That's just outrageous. But nonetheless, uh, when I said earlier, you have to think about what you're trying to accomplish with a financial transactions tax. Uh, you can have a high-frequency tax like the French, uh, which is sort of a messaging fee tax, uh, and that might be, would be enough uh, to end that activity. Uh, it'd just be too expensive. Um, it also could be that we want the SEC to just be more aggressive. Uh, but a higher financial transactions tax, if it gets set high enough, you have to worry about trading activity falling and then the economics actually being harmed. I don't know if the levels that you're talking about in Illinois and the pending legislation are high enough to, to make much of a difference. Certainly in the short run, it may be not worth anyone's while. Uh, to to, to um, uh, shift a contract from one location to another, or at least not enough people will do that to make a difference. But that's the kind of thing that you need to be mindful of. I think that's the underlying economic theory for why financial transaction taxes could introduce some dislocation and some and some detrimental uh, activity. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about a financial transaction tax uh, here on Worldview. And uh, one of the other objections is I read that the CME group put out a statement. They said, well, it's going to hurt, you know, not just traders. It's going to hurt the little guy. It's going to hurt farmers. It's going to hurt other people who are doing trading that is not, uh, you know, major uh, brokers and things. Ron, what do you – is that – True. Do you think that uh, eventually this tax gets would get passed on to the little guy in costs or something? Uh, uh, let me. Let me. I, I, I will. Yes. I mean, no. I don't believe that's true. But let me just first uh, just respond to some of the points that Steve made. Uh, uh, the the tax and the the bills in Chicago, the one that we're supporting, the Senate bill. 1970 by Aquino and co-sponsors uh, is specifically targets uh, derivative products that are almost exclusively traded in Chicago. So, unlike equities uh, that are traded uh, mostly, uh, you know, much more broadly in, in New York and other places, uh, the derivatives markets. Uh, Chicago has a. It, it's the world center for derivatives markets. And uh, the tax that we've designed, the LaSalle Street tax, really uh, targets 
only those products for which traders really, you know, right now there you, you can't just, uh, you know, go somewhere else. Uh, certainly not a place that has, a, you know, a large uh, liquidity, uh, a large number of other traders to trade those products. So I think I think we we are aware of the problems that Steve is uh, is concerned about, and we and hopefully have have addressed them in in our bill. Um, the uh, the second point uh, that you make about the, the the small people, and that that gets to this issue that we've both been talking about, uh, 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 Steve as well as myself, about the. The, the, the distinction between the high frequency traders and the economic traders um, uh, uh, the, the the folks that are uh, hedging uh, like a farmer who's trying to lock in a price for their for their product uh, you know at the end of the growing season uh, they they would be uh, negligibly affected by our fee which is which would be one dollar on an agricultural contract that you know averages about seventy five thousand. And two dollars on a on a financial contract that averages uh, over over three hundred thousand. Um, uh, so so you know someone who's who's not trading many many trades uh, uh, is not going to be the, the t- this tax would be negligible. Uh, also, we have excluded uh, all of the bills, both the, the the Senate bill that I'm talking about and the House bill that is is moving closer to the Senate bill, but uh, it, it still has some some issues, um, uh, would exclude uh, mutual funds and investment funds from uh, being uh, uh, liable for this ta- for this fee. Uh, so so we've we've taken off uh, any 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 possible impact uh, that those funds might uh, might experience from this and. Um, but uh, so so the, the the really the people that would be affected would be the high frequency traders, uh, and as Steve points out, it would be a volume effect uh, in Chicago as well, uh, and and so the and so it is it is certainly possible, and in fact that's one of the goals of the the Taiwan tax, for example, which is also uh, applies to uh, derivatives. Um, uh, is specifically to uh, to reduce uh, uh, to reduce high high frequency trading to make the exchange cleaner to make it uh, a better exchange for the people that actually want to use the exchange for legitimate economic uh, purposes uh, and and as 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 you noted it has it has been very successful at raising raising lots of revenue for Taiwan. I want to end with some thinking about the politics of this uh, on the the financial transaction tax. And, you know, it seems like it's something that is um, – that it's easy to put out there as a politician. And Hillary Clinton kind of put out a more vague proposal than than Bernie Sanders. And you can kind of put it out there and, and you probably don't have to live up to it when it comes down to it because it's hard to get these things through Congresses. And uh, it seems like it's a very difficult thing to pass. Is um, – is there something about this that um, you know? Eventually, the, the the financial institutions aren't worried about this. The traders aren't worried about this. They don't think they'll uh, you know you could ever get this thing passed. Um, Stephen Rosenthal. Uh, for for sure, the financial institutions have a vested interest, and historically been pretty successful. But I think going forward. Uh, the most attractive aspect of a financial transactions tax is, as Ron suggests, it can raise a whole lot of money. Uh, that's the attraction. But the flip side of that attraction is 
that money is coming from somewhere. And uh, that somewhere might yet be end users uh, like farmers or, uh, say, um, governments that issue uh, debt for, for, for bonds and the like. Um, or perhaps it's tailored enough just to hit uh, rent-seeking activity by financial intermediaries. That's a hard question to answer. And I'm not quite sure when, when Ron describes uh, the tax limited to derivatives, uh, whether that, how much high-frequency trading that picks up. Uh, the, most, most of these taxes are more broad in scope, not just derivatives, but what is known as physical stocks and bonds. Taiwan, for instance, taxes not just derivatives, but also stocks. And I'm quite familiar, as Michael Lewis wrote, with front-running and the high-frequency trading around stocks. I didn't know so much went on with derivatives. Uh, I just may not, may not know of that area. But just taxing derivatives, a more narrow base, uh, does raise a whole bunch of different questions than a more broadly based financial transaction tax would raise. Um, Ron, you have some final thoughts on the, the politics of all this? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's an enormously powerful, uh, you know, in, in Illinois, enormously powerful industry, as I said, and they, uh, you know, they large financial contributors, but, you know, Keith Griffin was a, uh, uh, is a high frequency trader and was a major funder of the, of the rounder campaign, for example, and other, uh, the Republican party in Illinois. Uh, so, so, you know, we're up against a very, very powerful industry that is extremely profitable and able to use its, its wealth to, to, to further its agenda. And as I noted in 1980, they were already aware enough of this to go down to Springfield to, uh, to lobby, to prevent the city from opposing this, um, uh, I think I think uh, again, Steve. I I I, uh, I agree with Steve that yes, um, you know, in Taiwan they tax all the products, but they also tax derivatives. And I, I raise that issue because um, uh, many uh, people uh, have said that well, uh, because the, it's a derivatives primarily focused uh, uh, South Street fee. Uh, it, 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 it's not going to work. And I'm, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we have examples where it does work and in fact contributes to that, to that, uh, five, five, uh, you know, uh, uh, billion take in Taiwan. Um, so, so, uh, you know, I, I just, I would encourage legislators in Illinois not to be so easily swayed by the lobbyists who have, you know, we've heard stories that we just put them on a flatbed and move everything out. I mean, among other things, you also have to clear the trades in Illinois. So it's not just where the, the matching occurs. It's also where the money is exchanged. And that's all done in Chicago as well. So, yes, you know, all these things could be moved out of state, but it would be a big investment and a big dislocation. It would primarily benefit high frequency traders and 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 reducing that that speculative activity would actually benefit. I mean all the research indicates right. that would benefit the legitimate economic traders. Run. Uh, so it would make a cleaner exchange as well. Ron Bayman is an economist with Benedictine University and a member of the Chicago Political Economy Group, and they are for a financial transaction tax. And Stephen Rosenthal is a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. Thank you both for joining us and talking about the possibility of a financial transaction tax in Chicago, in the state, in the nation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about pipelines in Illinois. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota pipeline generated determined opposition and controversy. In our own backyard, there's a proposed pipeline that you might not be aware of. The organization Soil Save Our Illinois Land is concerned about an Enbridge proposed pipeline that, if completed, would move more tar sands than Keystone XL. Members of Soil are making a presentation tonight in Evanston, and two of them are in the studio with me. Sandra Davis and Dave Davis are team founders of Save Our Illinois Land. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, You know, I wanted to ask about the big picture here. And in Canada, there's all these tar sands, and Enbridge is trying to get them out any way they can through pipelines that run through Nebraska or uh, this... Uh, there's another pipeline called the Line 3 pipeline that goes, they're trying to replace, that goes over to Lake Superior. Um, can you tell us, Dave, about the um, the big picture and how it has a relationship to, to what is going on here in Illinois? Sure. The, uh, now, you mentioned the Line 3 pipeline. That's a pipeline that runs from uh, Alberta, Canada to, to Tank Farm in Superior, uh, Wisconsin. And... Um, it was constructed in 1968, I think, and it was designed to carry uh, 760,000 uh, barrels a day. But, of course, it's aging. So um, that means less oil coming across the border into the United States to, to Superior, Wisconsin. So the, comp- the pipeline company, Enbridge, wants to, uh, they say, maintain it, uh, which really means just replace it. Now, uh, I, maybe the big picture is where does that oil, where does that tar sands oil go once it reaches the tank farms in Superior, Wisconsin? Well, it comes down through Illinois. So, some of it will go to the uh, to the east through the Straits of Mackinac, but but a lot of it comes down through Illinois. And the effort to uh, replace this pipeline seems to be getting running into heavy opposition with the state of Minnesota. The new governor seems to be against it, and. Uh, if they're they're not going to get their oil out that way, they've got um, kind of another idea that would seem to have to do with uh, with uh, with Line 61, which is another pipeline that runs right through Illinois, right through the center of Illinois, and which is the thing you're um, interested in. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, we know that uh, Alberta tar sands are landlocked. Uh, with the exception of trying to go east, trying to go west. And, and uh, the people of Canada aren't really crazy about that. So um, they have even talked about buying up railroads and so forth to be able to, to, to uh, uh, get, the, get the tar sands oil on, on rail to bring it down. But we know that w- if that line is approved, it will increase the, the capacity back up to its original of 760,000 barrels a day. Once it reaches a tanks, tank farm in uh, 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 um, Superior, Wisconsin, it has to go somewhere. So where is it going to go? It will come down through Illinois. So when that when that 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 line three is increased, that additional about three or four hundred thousand barrels a day has to go somewhere. That means that capacity in Illinois will have to be increased. One of the methods of increasing that capacity is to put in a twin to the existing line sixty one. And, and by the way, you, you mentioned the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipeline, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. The existing line sixty one that you mentioned is approximately the same capacity of those two combined. 
Illinois is really the super highway for tar sands oil coming coming uh, from from uh, Alberta, Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, Sandra, tell me a little bit about Line sixty one. It, it comes right down, um, crosses Wisconsin, a little east of Beloit, a little east of Belvedere, goes down to Pontiac. Is that about the idea of it? Yes. Yes. And the it, this is something that is. It's only how old? Ten years. It's. 2007, 2008? 2009. Nine, okay. And um, it, it has a capacity of 1.2 million barrels of oil a day, which is huge. Now, what happened when that was proposed and executed? Because it sounds like that right there was um, a moment where people who were opposed to this should have rallied and, and, and kind of gotten together on this. Um, at, at that time, unfortunately, not too many people were watching. Yeah, um, it, 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 people just assumed that everything was taken care of. As a matter of fact, even the counties didn't feel like they could do anything. They thought it was all federal that that took care mm-hmm. of uh, the, the approval process of of pipelines. So no one was really much involved at that particular time. That changed somewhat with the Southern Access uh, Pipeline. Uh, and it also changed, as you know, with the Dakota Access Pipeline. So ordinary citizens are becoming more and more involved with that approval pop process of pipelines. Um, Sandra, tell us a little bit about SOIL, the Save Our uh, Illinois Land Organization, and when you guys first popped up onto the scene. Um, SOIL was a, a campaign that was first started with 350 Kishwaukee and became its own entity. Um, it has a 501c3 status. And it's um, interested in in organizing the landowners so that they have a voice in what's going on. And how many, who are the landowners that are involved here? Is it mostly farmland or is it something else? It's mostly farmland and farmers. And the farmers are, if they've signed off on this thing once, it seems like they would sign off on it again. If Enbridge wanted to build another one right next to it, why, what would keep them from, from just signing off again? Um, people have gotten a lot smarter about oil, and um, it's, it's, some are in favor of it, but some are in learning the implications of having oil and what it does to the climate. So, um, How many people do you end up talking to that know about Enbridge's track record now? That's increasing all the yes. time because mm-hmm. of um, organizations like Soil who are doing presentations and talking about the approval process for pipelines. So that is increasing, but quite frankly, not enough. Even in DeKalb, uh, mm-hmm. home of NIU, uh, we make presentations there, and we've been doing it for three years now, and we still get people come to our presentations that said, we n- had no idea that you could walk from the convocation center in DeKalb to a pipeline that, that's carrying 1.2 million barrels a day, and and that there's a proposal to double that, which would be 2.4 million barrels a day. So, so you're right. We don't. We we aren't doing our job well. Our education job well. We need to do better. And and, and Enbridge had a big oil spill in Kalamazoo that of uh, record-breaking proportions, mm-hmm. uh, and got bad reviews for how they handled it. 
Yeah, not only not only in, in Kalamazoo, mm-hmm. which was I think the biggest inland oil spill, but also right down the road in, in Romeoville. There was a major spill in Romeoville, 256,000 barrels, I think, into the streets of Romeoville. And on top of that spill, Enbridge accused the village of being responsible for it. Uh, uh, I took them to court. That lasted a long time. Uh, the village won, fortunately. And, and uh, we, we did some research on, on um, the company Enbridge and the spills, and, and we found that oh, – actually, we went to their, their uh, Enbridge's own – um, archived data files, and we found that between 1996 and 2014, they had 1,276 spills mm-hmm. of close to 10 million gallons of oil. Uh, right. although, by the way, those are major spills. Those, those aren't the trickly spills. Those are the major spills. So, so uh, pipelines do spill. There's no doubt about it. But right now, this Line 61, has it been spilling? Have people seen any spills? It's relatively new. That's, that's a good question. Um, we know as a result of the Kalamazoo spill, the EPA and the, the regulatory agencies required Enbridge and other pipeline companies to do more inspections. So we know they have dug up portions of, of that pipeline to do repairs. Now, we don't know whether it was actually spilling at that point. The, pipeline companies are using a new term that we, we never heard. What, what is it, Sandra? Weeping. Weeping. They're using a phrase, weak, weeping. <laughs> and and you know how they tell whether a pipeline is leaking? They do it by, by pressure and temperature. And I, I know, Jerome, that you know that the tar sands oil is like peanut butter. You know, yep. very, very thick, and they'd have to dilute it to even get it to throw through, flow through. Imagine how much difference there would have to be in temperature or pressure to even determine a, a, a leak. So we suspect, even in a relatively new pipeline like that, that's probably leaking in a lot of places that we didn't even know about. And that, that's, that's speculation, of course, but uh, yeah. I'm talking with Dave Davis and Sandra Davis. They are team founders of Save Our Illinois Land Soil, and the organization is concerned about uh, a proposed Enbridge pipeline uh, that's would twin with uh, Line 61 that's already existing. Um, how much do you know? I mean, Enbridge seems to have floated this idea for a twin pipeline. Do you think they are going to really follow through on this thing? That's another very interesting question. Uh, they advertised the twin in their shareholder um, um, filings, quarterly sh- shareholder uh, filings, uh, for about two years running. Uh, Wisconsin has been um, ha- has a very concerted effort. Uh, it's it's called no no eminent domain for pro- uh, private gain. They even put up billboards. They tell us that the day that they were going up with those billboards, that Enbridge removed that from their website. Uh, Now, we do know that, as we said earlier, if Line 3 goes through and that oil comes to to, uh, Superior, it has to go somewhere. And there might be other ways to incrementally increase it, uh, and Enbridge is now advertising those. But uh, um, I, I guess, Jerome, our idea is we want to be prepared this time. We don't want to be 2009. You know, we definitely want to get ahead of the game. It sounds like one of the things you're doing to be prepared is on the eminent domain track. And explain what Soil's been doing there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, I, I, I'm sure well, eminent domain now is in the national news uh, because of the wall. 
Uh, And and now that particular uh, use of eminent domain is really for a a, uh, um, government project. But this eminent domain that's used in Illinois for pipelines is really eminent domain by a private company for for, uh, private gain. And we know that's a pretty unpopular thing. So for a pipeline company to to, uh, be able to use eminent domain, they have to go to an agency in Illinois called the Illinois Commerce Commission, and they have to get approval to use use eminent domain. they, they go to a landowner and they say, "I would like to I would like to negotiate with you for uh, uh, to take your property for a pipeline." And the landowner says, "No, no, no, no! I don't want you to do that." And, and uh, they say, "We'll offer you money." And 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 the pipeline company says, "Okay, uh, here, here's a lot of money." And the, uh, uh, the landowner says, "No, no, no! I don't want to." So if the if the pipeline company has the approval of the Illinois Commerce Commission, they can use eminent domain and and condemn that 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 land. The the uh, the the bargaining chip that landowners have had up until 2015 was the ability to delay the pipeline. They can't come on and do the construction until the landowner has their day in court uh, for a trial by jury. Well, there was a court case in 2015 in which Enbridge uh, went to court and took away that power of the landowner. Uh, so they essentially took away the negotiating power of the landowner. So one of, one of the, uh, uh, by the way, soil is an educational uh, 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 organization. One of the pieces of legislation that we think would be a good one would be to restore that power, to restore that bargaining power. And there is a bill right now in the House. Uh, actually, it's in the Senate this year. It's uh, Senate Bill 1527. We would love to have your your. Uh, your listeners, uh, t- take a look at that bill. Now, people can get more information at your website, saveourillinoisland.org, and find out more about soil. And you're also going to be tonight at the uh, Chicago Area Peace Action Climate Group meeting at the Mather, 425 Davis Street in Evanston. What time is that? That's at 7? Seven. 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, members of Soil Save Our Illinois Land, and telling us about the pipeline issues here in Illinois. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking about a new movie series on religion. Hope you can join us for that. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.